0: You're working, uh, I think we're halfway there. I had to click there. the
1: turn the camera on button. I think ah. that was the thing on my side.
0: Okay, all right, let me open this up, put it on there. I think we're working. I, if you can't see me, uh, is, is just my voice gonna be okay? Because the, the audience can see you, so I think that'll be enough.
1: That's fine, I mean, I think we both have ADHD, so we might talk over each other, but <laughs> you know, other than that, I think we'll be fine.
0: <laughs> I, I am certainly known to do that. <laughs> um well actually maybe you can teach me more about that i didn't know that was an adhd symptom i thought i was just uh, perpetually being an asshole okay.
1: well I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you um as part of gender affirming care the the standards of care um from the WPATH say you actually have to specialize or consult with someone who specializes with neurodivergence so all that talk about What about the kids with the autism and being trans? Ah, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's actually part of the, the care process to, like, look into that because there is such an overlap.
0: Um, Okay, okay. so I I, I was going to say, I probably have so many questions about that. I should quickly introduce you. Uh, This is Rila Ireland Drain, and uh, according to your biography, you've uh, graduated for the Bachelor of Science in Psychology and Master of Social Work degrees from Kennesaw State University, and you began your journey in social work by working with the Disability Services Department at DragonCon. Very, very cool. Yeah. yep, Uh, um, yep. And I'm just curious if you could explain a little bit about what brought you down this path and what exactly uh, is it that you do in terms of offering uh, services and gender-affirming care?
1: Okay, well, um, well, what brought me down the path is ultimately service, right? Like, um, uh, social work in our code of ethics, we have a thing where um, service is a part of it. Um, Social justice is a part of it. it's been something I've always been passionate about. And, you know, I started actually doing things through DragonCon. I'm kind of one of the hotel leads in that department, uh, disability services. And I loved working with the, my um, consumers, making sure they had their accommodations. I also advocated for my own community, uh, doing guest lectures. Well, I'm part of the disabled community as well, but that's beside the point. Um, I did lectures at Kennesaw State University with uh, one of the uh, people in the psych department um, on uh, transgender 101, uh, that kind of stuff, queer 101 uh, guest lectures with uh, panelists, sometimes by myself, most of the time with others. Um, And I just wanted to make it my career. And when I was basically looking at my options, social work was the one that appealed to me the most in my values. And ultimately, after working two years in community mental health, um, I joined uh, probably the best private practice, uh, Modern Path uh, here in Atlanta for working with LGBTQIA individuals, which is my chosen population, as well as neurodivergent people. We have a large population because of that overlap I mentioned earlier. Um, And as someone who has both, autism, ADHD, gender diversity, it's, it, it is is um, important to me to serve my own communities. Um, all, like we at our group practice, but also me as, as well, I think it is very, very important to have community-led therapy, having that shared experience. Because I mean, often when my clients feel stuck and they're like processing their feelings, i will just kind of like, Give them, like, a little bit of, like, hey, this is the standard, like, narrative of X thing you're talking about. Does that match your experience? And they're like, why are you attacking me by telling me my own stuff? You know? (laughs) And so that's kind of uh, basically how um, how I do therapy and how I got where I'm at.
0: Can you... And I know I'm probably going to uh, make a few mistakes along the way on how I phrase some of these things. But could you lead us through what is the pathway to receiving gender affirming care um, and maybe cater to people who might be currently a little apprehensive about this entire concept?
2: Sure.
1: Um, Well, it depends on like who you you are. Like, are you a child? Are you an adolescent? Are you an adult? Um, but what it basically starts with is ultimately contacting someone like me um, and kind of processing how you feel about your gender. Um, obviously, you don't have to start with me. There are informed consents if you're an adult, but um often parents of adolescents and or and or children, um, I get I have them on my caseload, will uh, reach out to me and help, and I will uh, do an assessment just to confirm if they have or are presenting currently with gender dysphoria. And, uh, then I will help them do, uh, what I call like a self archeological dig of basically like exploring their gender affirming on the way where you're currently at and the more we uncover, uh, the better we'll know. Um, frankly, um, another metaphor we often use in my work is like the gender galaxy, you start on the plant of your planet of your gender, you are assigned at birth. And you explore several other planets, um, and then there's like the uh, gender presentation, like uh, Milky Way, like or like not Milky Way, asteroid belt or whatever. And basically, it can be anything; it's infinite. Um, and it's all about just making sure you know yourself, and also dealing with any co-occurring issues um, as like gender exploration. Obviously, once it becomes apparent. Um, gender dysphoria is something that is uh, prevalent. If you are a child, um, uh, after some exploration, you might start doing some social transition at uh, home, and then eventually like with other personal life stuff, and then eventually school, if if you're in a space where it is safe to do so. Um, And that's like you say many times on stream, that's kind of it for kids, right? and then once we get to adolescence, um, if we're doing like the standard, bog standard path, once you reach Tanner stage two of puberty, so you know that line the conservatives say where it's like, well, they're not even in puberty yet. How do they know? Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, you have to be at Tanner stage two to even begin uh, puberty blockers. So they let you like start puberty. to get Can you, you explain Tanner stage height two? Up. Yeah, Tanner stage two is basically um, like, the, if I had to put a percentage on it, like the 20th, the 25% done with puberty. Um, for people assigned male at birth, that looks like, you know, you're starting to get a little hair in places. Maybe your um, testes have grown a little bit. Um, maybe your voice is cracking a little bit, you know, and um, for um, people assigned female at birth, maybe your uh, breasts are starting to bud, just, just, just starting to bud, maybe again, all of those things are also happening. Your voice will lower a little bit, not as much as those assigned male at birth, um, but not even that much at all at Tanner stage two, both of them just a tiny bit. And then um, puberty blockers will be prescribed at that time. I work with, um, here in Atlanta, I work with a a specific organization that handles a lot of the gender hormone stuff, but you can go to any endocrinologist that is competent um, to get what you need. Um, and then, um, let's see, and then ultimately, you know, you have that uh, few years, ideally just a few years on puberty blockers. And um, then ideally, although not soon in my state, sadly, or not, not for long in my state, sadly, because they have banned it. Um, you would start hormone replacement therapy. However, um, what is really interesting is the conservatives in my state are talking about like, oh, you know, the damage of hormones, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the, the thing about that is they're going to be keeping kids in puber- puberty blockers longer than just a couple of years is when you actually start to see some of that bone density issues. Some of those other things that are bad about puberty blockers is when you're on them for a long time. So it's almost like You're causing the problem.
0: Um, Oh, can you you explain that a a little bit more detail? Because like, is is that is there first you're on puberty blockers until you're at that uh, appropriate age to start receiving HRT, but is HRT necessary to negate some of the negative effects of the puberty blockers? Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yes. um, So hormones uh, um, is required to basically negate some of the bone density issues. Some of, um, however, if you're on puberty blockers for three, five years. Um, you most likely will have some permanent um, issues. For example, uh, your height won't potentially reach the maximum that you could have reached. Um, but um, having those, um, you also risk some of those fertility issues that you know are on the table when you're conservative talking about, like you know, castrating kids and all that. Like yeah, technically, I yes.
2: to get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: Uh, um, technically, like the longer you're on them, um, the, the the you might have issues concerning uh, size if you were to continue uh, natal puberty. Um, but ultimately, um, that is that is mitigated by being on it less time. Um and uh but if you get the wh- any type of hormone, be it um uh a tra- like trans like getting your uh chosen hormone or continuing natal puberty, uh you will most likely have uh s- full sexual function, you just run the risk of it, possibly not happening, but it mm-hmm. is again, it is a percentage of uh, like a risk you know how when they say like women who are 30 uh or 35 or whatever are like at like 50% more likely to miscarriage. The the percentage is like 50% more is only like two or three percent or whatever mm-hmm. it actually is. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. No, no, I, I, it's I know. It's like we're I yeah, we're lying with statistics basically. If you're mm-hmm. like making it seem that scary, right? Um so so
0: it's a very rare occurrence like cuz i hear that argument yeah. all the time like this these these are chemical castration and they're used to chemically castrate prisoners and things like that from the right
1: yeah well the other reason they're saying that is if you um if you do go on to hrt they won't, you'll never properly um uh develop um uh like you know um gametes properly. Um, there's a famous example of Jazz Jennings, um, um, being concerned about, um, they were concerned about her bottom surgery because her, uh, her penis wasn't very developed. Um, and, uh, technically there were things that could have been done to mitigate that, but she didn't want to do it for her own dysphoric reasons, which, you know, that was her choices. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately like there are methods to like do what we need what you need to do um it, and, and things can be mitigated if done correctly
0: and so it is assumed that after a certain period of using puberty blockers the safest next step would be to put someone on hrt and then do reduce or stop the puberty blockers once they're on hormone replacement you stop
1: therapy. the yeah you stop the puberty blockers once they're on hormone replacement therapy um or you just transition to um like an anti-androgen, a different anti-androgen that um, like, for example, spironolactone as opposed to Lupron
0: Um. because yes, I was gonna ask one of maybe taking a couple steps back one of the things I also hear a lot is that this is kind of a revolving door system you know this is obviously exclusive from the right I know this isn't true but what like do you know like is it frequent or often for you for people to come in and after running you know your what you said is metaphors whether that be you know the galaxy or whatever or however you're framing it and you go through exercises what's the kind of process like is there is it a, a series of steps before you would start to make an assessment As in, this person may have gender dysphoria this person could just be non-binary they're not actually experiencing or they could be cis and experiencing gender dysphoria in a way that cis people don't fully understand right now
1: yeah um so i mean if you're talk, when you're talking about revolving door if you mean like i know i know conservatives often are like oh we're you're you're affirming instantly and like mm-hmm. you know you're basically making the kids be trans or whatever yeah. Um. So I, I don't remember which it could have been you or another uh, person I was listening to. They said like most kids are trans continue to be trans. That's actually not true for children. Okay. Um, for children um who are experiencing uh, gender dysphoria, um, you will have them explore gender in safe ways. Um, maybe going through a full social transition to try it out with family. Etc. etc. but um, uh, you you will find that there are three options from that point. The children are homosexual, they're um, in cisgender, they're cisgender, heterosexual, or there's transgender and whatever eventual sexuality they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a mixed bag while they're actually children. However, if gender dysphoria per, um, persists into adolescence, mm-hmm. Um, you are more likely to see, like, like almost like, in, in the research that you'll, if you look at the WPATH-8, the research they cite, um, overwhelming evidence that almost everyone who gets to adolescence having gender dysphoria persists are transgender. Okay. Um, so that's the key there, is adolescence is when you'll
0: know. So that's why gender affirming care up until that point is just affirmation
1: yep and exploration
0: and exploration and so in that affirmation exploration you then within a period of time I don't know how many years maybe you could help me with that within a period of time are then able to assess how it most likely will be one of these three outcomes and then at which point you can be like I you know after uh, how however many years I'm, I'm gonna guess like multiple years It
1: depends on the child it depends okay. on when they entered my care
0: mm-hmm.
1: like it like for example if they entered my care, and they were like 10, that means they're pretty close to adolescence, right? If they entered my care when they were younger, the, um, you know, they might not be with me that long. You know, mm-hmm. they might like see me at the beginning of their journey while they're figuring it out. And then maybe they see another therapist when it gets close to adolescence or they don't have gender dysphoria. Ultimately, they decide it isn't for them. Mm-hmm. And then they were just feeling some gender incongruence, which is that technically the ICD-10 um, uh diagnostic, uh, like diagnosis label, instead of gender dysphoria. Technically, in the states, we use gender dysphoria, um, instead of the ICD eleven. Actually, I misspoke. Um, but six one way, half dozen the uh, You know what I mean? Anyway, um, but yeah, that's basically how it, um, how it is. It 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 really depends. Like. Most of my uh, clients that I'm working with are um, adolescents with gender dysphoria though. So it persists. And of course, um, uh, most of the ones that I have worked with have been with parents that are either affirming or like just kind of needing to figure it out. Um, I have worked with a couple parents that were not on board, but- Mm
0: -hmm. um, How does
1: that go? well the way it goes when they're when parents are on board is it, it's a lot about emotional um there's a couple different ways I go about it uh motivational interviewing is is the the first step which is basically seeing where the parents are at where they're sitting on that decision what motivational interviewing do uh, there's a misconception that it's you can use it to like basically make people change that's not true it's basically getting people to uh, to uh, define their ambivalence, whether they should change or not change, accept or not accept. And then basically, uh, all you're doing is helping them make the decision. Um, so, and not only that, but I will also like conduct some psychoeducation, you know, um, uh, mentioning like what, what affirming does for kids, um, you know, I will eventually mention the suicide stuff, but I don't mention it at the beginning of our, uh, us working together because, mm. uh, you know, I don't want to scare parents. Um, mm. but, you know, I know the right say we use that as like a, uh, like a That's bludgeon right. against them, but yeah, it's no, so it's, gross. it's really, it's really, we, we, we basically get to the point where like literally when I've had that conversations, parents, I'm like, Hey, I want you to know that this is the, like, you know, the percentage, 41% or whatever it is, so, you know, there's the meme, um, but like, this is the the percentages and I have like a, a, a slide with all the information on it. And I'll just say, how does this move the needle for you? So I don't make a decision for them. I don't guilt them. I, I, you know, I accept them where they're at in that moment. I meet them where they are. That's kind of the mantra to therapy is meeting the client or in this case, the client's parents. Mm -hmm. where they are. And I just say, how does that move the needle for you? Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't had a parent, um, not go for it, um, mostly. And then the other component is also doing, um, what we call, um, it's a, it's a therapeutic, uh, a technique called the downward arrow technique where you basically you ask them what their concerns are, and you ask them, well, if that were true, what would that mean to you? And you can basically continue to ask that question over and over again until you get to the self-defeating belief, or in this case, the defeating belief for their child of, like, why they have apprehensive, why they're apprehensive of their uh, child being trans. Mm -hmm. And 90-ish percent of the time, it's, I'm scared they're going to have a hard life. Mm -hmm. And so you basically would work with a parent being like, well, what is more important to you? like being their safe harbor for that for that hard life, or you know trying to make to, trying to avoid it and being like the first step in your child's hard life, you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I imagine that's unbelievably complex. Before I forget someone's asking in chat, and I don't know if I'll remember this by the time all the chats move by, someone's asking, could a person freeze their eggs and sperm before HRT to save the option?
1: Um, if they have already uh, developed enough um, in puberty to um, do that, yes. um it it depends on um, if they were on blockers, if they weren't on blockers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it It depends on where 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 they were developed. Um and I know for eggs, it's different than sperm, for example. Mm-hmm. um if uh, if the testes never develop enough to properly make produce gametes, that's why they call it chemical castration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, as part of the uh, the standards of care, go over all of that with uh, parents and adolescents and being like, these are the risks. These are the, you know, this is the stuff that you have to consider.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, most kids are like, well, I don't want to, I want to avoid FFS for my trans feminine clients. So, yes. Uh, i understand that risk and i don't want to go through you know uh uh, thousands of dollars of surgeries unnecessarily so yes i understand that i won't have that you know does it does it produce the highest
0: amount of good outcomes for people seeking gender-affirming care as opposed to allowing them to go through puberty for a small amount of time and then putting them on on hrt later or is puberty blockers the best course of action even though it does carry risks the
1: the The current um, best course of action, ultimately one is what the client wants, of course. Like if they want to make sure they develop uh, sperm, then of course, that's Mm -hmm. one. But just if you're talking about like the broad brush general um, formula for um, gender affirming care, um, evidence suggests that puberty blockers are it. Um, You may need to do some topical testosterone on the genitals of um, um, when we are considering uh, vaginoplasty, and by the way, I'm talking about a lot of stuff that isn't therapy right now. You right. might be saying, "Well, who is she?" Like, no, <laughs> it's because I'm part I'm part of interdisciplinary teams where we are working with clients, uh, talking about the risks, talking about all of that stuff. And like it's not just me; it's their doctors, their surgeons, their ah uh, uh, primary care providers. If they have a social worker that isn't a therapist talking to them, talk like the 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 standards of care for adolescents and minors uh state that we're supposed to, if if possible, due to economic stuff, work in, in- interdisciplinary teams.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's not just one person being like like you know this is everything
0: ah you know yeah yeah, yeah. no, yeah, no I, I assumed you weren't performing the surgeries yourself and <laughs> it was like a, one, a one-stop shop for everything <laughs> um but that that does play a crucial role too because I, I think a lot of the fear and obviously the right has been making this so difficult in terms of messaging right saying that and i want to get to mm-hmm. discussing intersex uh individuals as well could you clear up for a lot of people who might understand the differences between gametes chromosomes uh and sexes because that's something else that comes up quite a bit
1: yeah so gametes are the actual sex cells that are produced chromosomes are the um like uh the the like information in in your like dna that code you as male or female uh sex is a a a umbrella term that categorizes all of your sexual uh characteristics be it primary or secondary um does that answer the question
0: oh perfectly and i was going to say then what about the there are just two sexes this is a biological certainty so says richard dawkins
1: fact <laughs> that richard dawkins would say <laughs> that anyway um, that was recent. Yeah. By the way. He's, he's only recently yeah. started that arc. Uh, it's a bimodal distribution, as I've heard many of you and your colleagues say and my colleagues say, right, mm-hmm. um, where basically, you know, life is messy. Life is uh, uh, complicated. And so we can't so we can't um, cleanly fit everybody in the male or female box. Right. So that the idea that sex is a social construct is technically true because what it means to be a sex comes with a bunch of um, examples of one, two, three, four. You have all of them, but mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily true because of intersex conditions. Um, not only that, but you, know, you could um, do a gotcha of getting them to define binary. Uh, Mm -hmm. as you know one or two and then say well the fact that we have like intersex people exists means that sex cannot be binary it has to be non-binary Ha, ha, ha,
0: you know? <laughs> well, I can already I can already hear Ben Shapiro in the back of my head saying something because he's already had to address this. And his argument is that, well, intersex people uh, do exist. It is simply someone whose genitals don't match their sex or it's an abnormality of that. But it's such an infinitesimally small percentage of the population that ultimately uh, this is not indicative of there being a third sex. It's not proof of a third sex in any way, shape or form. Yeah,
1: and as I know you already know, 1 in 2,000 people are intersex. That's equivalent to the people of uh, having natural red hair. Also, 1 in 100 people, um, while they might not be considered intersex, they do have um, some characteristics that do not quite align. For example, having PCOS or having gyna uh, mastia. Uh, These conditions, um, while they do not they are not technically considered intersex conditions are not are not quite what we would expect for um sex typical like hitting checking all the boxes
0: mm-hmm. could you explain then how intersex people uh do not fit within that uh strict binary
1: um i Off the top of my head, considering I only went to feeling school, I don't know every intersex condition. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, basically, there are ones where you're androgen insensitive, meaning like you don't properly absorb testosterone. So you might um, appear to be female, even though technically your chromosomes say XY. Mm -hmm. Um, There are XXY. There is, um, you know, several different conditions. So klein Filter syndrome um etc etc. Um basically there's these conditions that don't cleanly hit male or female. And these people aren't necessarily trans or not necessarily cisgender. Um, it depends on their identity, right? Not every intersex person is trans and not like um every uh trans person is intersex unless you count HRT as like a self-imposed intersex, but it's <laughs> not what it is, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um within the uh people who are intersex how frequent is it because my understanding is that it's usually parents who will determine what they want the sex of their child to be if it is someone who has uh a complication of either both uh, genitals or maybe uh underdeveloped genitals in one direction or another it was difficult to determine Mm -hmm. whether this should be an assigned male or assigned female at birth um how, how does that usually work
1: Well, actually it's, um, like it's, it's typically by the, um, size of like the protopenis, um, determines whether they pick one or the other. And that's usually a doctor's decision, um, when, when they were, when it was the, um, standard to, you know, change the genitals. Luckily that is slowly changing, but it's not, you know, a comprehensive change.
0: Would the doctor inform the parents? Would the doctor be like, your child has been born with a condition known as yes. XXY chromosomes or, or something like this? And in
2: this case, well, we they, might made... not,
1: they might not even know the exact intersex condition. They're just looking at the genitals saying, oh, it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's X. It's it's this long. So therefore, we're going to do this. Do you consent, basically?
0: And then the parents still have to consent to that. Yes. OK. And then frequently. Will they go, I'm assuming they'll just go with what the doctor says, right? Like this is, uh, I know you thought you were getting a boy, but this is a girl and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I mean, often, especially in the past, they would just, you know, do whatever the doctor says. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Going to the portion that seems to scare the right the most, uh, mastectomies are available from what age and what goes into the prior consent of that?
1: All right. So I'm gonna kind of just talk about uh, surgeries for adolescents in general. Because a long time ago when the standard of care eight uh, came out, I actually emailed you about this. <laughs> um, it was like, you were
0: warning me about the future. Like Lance, your messaging is gonna change.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically the the way it works is um, adolescents for gender affirming uh, surgeries uh, the first step is, um, it's a vague step, which isn't, I think there it's important they, to make it vague, to tailor it to the client, but they say that the gender dysphoria must be persistent for at least one year or longer, um, for, for any potential surgery can happen by the standard of care. So that's one. Um, two, um. Any surgery, no matter what it is, um, they have to weigh distress versus um, the potential outcomes, and basically ensuring that um, the distress is great enough to compare to the the risk of the outcomes, so the co- potential complications, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, because this has persisted. And if applicable, depending on their gender journey need, also, they've been on HRT for at least one year. Of course, if they're non-binary and they don't desire HRT, you know, that's a whole nother ball mm-hmm. of wax. which the Standards of Care finally has a whole chapter on non-binary people. So, yes, yay, it's changing. That's amazing, right?
2: Yeah, no, it's good. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. But, um, but then, um, so... It, it also looks at what you're looking at materially versus what the standards say, right? So material, I'll use Georgia as an example because that's the state I'm in. So Georgia just recently passed a ban on gender affirming surgeries for minors, mm-hmm. as well as hormones. Um, it will go in effect July 1st. Um, so the thing about that, we didn't have anyone in Georgia providing gender-affirming surgeries for minors, be it mastectomies or otherwise. Oh, wow. So materially, we didn't lose anything. Mm-hmm. Of course, on a civil rights issue, a human rights issue, we lost stuff. But materially, we didn't lose anything. There are no doctors in Georgia that provide that. Um, but that's one thing. Um, but then, so you have things like what the standards of care say, excuse me, and what other professions um, say about what their their, what their care stuff. So the endocrine, endocrinological uh, type, the endocrine society basically has their standards um, for what they think is correct. It might be slightly different than the WPAP. Um, the urinal, urinological, whatever, the people who um, do like bottom surgery and vaginoplasty, phalloplasty, et cetera, have their own information. They might all follow the WPATH to an extent, but there might be sub-disciplines that have slight differences. Um, so like, for example, the new WPATH standards state as follows, and this is where you might get some and Bailey type issues when you're, you know, in the compound, um, but basically like they say technically that minors can have vaginoplasty. Mm-hmm. After at least one year on hormones and significant distress where the risks are, you know, warrant, warranted against that distress, so mm-hmm. actively suicidal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, also, if they bring up Jazz Jennings because that's the current, um, they're using her as a, as a chip because she, um, they, they believe that her surgery didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Um, there are, there is new technology, um, for example, the, uh, peritoneum pull through method, instead of having to use colons for creating, uh, vaginal canals, uh, for minors, um, that isn't necessarily true anymore. It really depends, um, on client by client basis. So, um, but, and that's the key client by client basis to get a vaginoplasty as a minor you have to have significant significant distress but so technically yes that might happen in a small number of cases and you might be able to find a like one or two doctors in the country willing to do that, that but it's not an epidemic of doctors doing vaginoplasty at um, uh, bef- while they're still my, while while the 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 transgender youth is still a youth
0: well, the chip um, I find that they're using a lot now is Body Integrity Identity Disorder, B-I-I-D, which, like, from my limited research on it, seems to be something that is so rare that I find it kind of just grotesque to compare it to people who are trans, but that's, I'm, as I can tell by your reaction already, you're well aware that it's people who have a condition that feel that they have to amputate a limb or something like that, right? But yep, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you could probably answer this better than I can. What I've what I've seen is that this is something that is so exceptionally rare. But the, in this few cases where people have pursued like uh, actual black market surgeries and actually achieved it, it causes more distress. It's like there's a temporary relief of your condition followed by far more distress afterwards because you have to deal with the complications of having a very unsafe surgery. Uh, you are now severely disabled. Uh, all this contributes and it does not have positive outcomes.
1: Yes, 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 and yes. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> All right, good. but the the other the other component to that to use a more common disorder, uh, uh, body dysmorphia as an example, sure. the thing that makes it different between gender identity and uh, or should I say gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia, and um can't remember the acronym, but the one you just mentioned mm. um, is basically uh dysmorphia, there's an, a strong anxiety component and an unrealistic image of whatever the thing you're anxious about um, is is integral to like having that dysmorphia diagnosis. Um if you want to go into discourse, uh the, the philosophy tube um potentially um saying that gender dysphoria isn't real isn't This a form of gatekeeping. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's a form of gatekeeping, but also to compare it to body dysmorphia isn't quite right because of the fact that it's the like um the anxiety and not the accurate view of person's body. Trans people know exactly what their bodies look like. And that's why they're having their dysphoria. They're not um delusional or they're not um they have no misconceptions on the parts of their bodies that bother them. That's why it isn't uh, dysmorphia.
0: Um, so people who are body dysmorphic don't fully understand why they are no, no, no. dysmorphic? It or... isn't that
1: they don't understand why. It's that it's more like, for example, if I thought that my nose was ginormous, mm-hmm. I'd talk to you about how my nose was so big, but I don't have a ginormous nose. But mm-hmm. I think I do. Right. That's the difference. Um, Whereas trans people, like before I got rid of my- um,
0: Oh, it's like my, almost a delusion, as as in like the person yeah, who's not yeah. seen it. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Uh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And not only that, but I think there's a common um, misunderstanding of Abigail's arguments that really, sh- because of the way gender dysphoria is written in the DSM and incongruence in the ICD-11, um. It's technically written in such a way that only trans people can have it, even though there are examples of cisgender people having things that look like gender dysphoria, like, you know, the stereotypical e- example of the uh, the incel thinking he doesn't have a Chadley jaw or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what if- not technically uh, gender dysphoria because it doesn't say anything about, like, same gender, but not, like, enough, <laughs> you know?
0: I was going to ask, what about um, the... There's a case of an editor I know, Justin T. Brown, who said he got gender-affirming care in high school in the form of a mastectomy uh, because he had gyno. And no matter how much he worked out, no matter how, what he did, he couldn't reduce the size of his breasts as a cis man, and that was causing him to have gender dysphoria. And so as a result of that, he got gender-affirming care in the form of a mastectomy, and it helped him, and he was greatly alleviated from that. Is, is that technically gender dysphoria, even experienced by a cis person, or is it something else with that...
1: I believe that's gender dysphoria, but by the way that the 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 diagnostic criteria is written, it's not gender dysphoria. Okay, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um,
1: um, and just so happens, I had the opposite happen to me, where I had gynecomastia before um, uh, before uh, puberty, or not during puberty, before transition, and I was like, oh god, people are going to know that I like that. <laughs>
0: um okay so the difference the big one being that for body dysmorphic people they are clearly seeing something that other people would not find to be representational like it is a a delusion that you see yourself as something that you're not and you have to achieve aims to fix that whereas uh, and and it's a
1: strong anxiety component inserting it
0: in in both that and gender dysphoria for body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria um the anxiety part i mean yeah
1: yes but technically the anxiety part is not um written in uh the in gender dysphoria um even it just says distress but with dysmorphia it specifically talks about like um like anxiety
0: okay um When it comes to things like mastectomies, and uh, we hadn't even gone as far as, you know, uh, sorry, vagioplasties, but for mastectomies specifically, because this seems to be a centerpiece of the culture war, the numbers that I've seen seem very low. Like, there's like 250 gender affirming care mastectomies per year. And then when I was looking up cyst surgeries for cosmetic surgeries or breast implants or reductions and all, it was like 230,000. <laughs> they weren't mm-hmm. even in the same ballpark. So are we talking about something that is legitimately performed at such a minute level? Like I, I haven't even looked up yet. Uh, I'm going to, but what what vagioplasties are or, or how often they're performed. But I assume we're, we're talking about extreme rare cases, right?
1: Yes. Yep. Because it has to be an extreme level of distress um to not wait till um you know adulthood mm-hmm. um and yeah you're 100% right like um the reason why mastectomies are like more were more common um for um uh those that are transmasculine is because um it can kind of be integral to passing uh, for some mm-hmm. um and basically it causes great distress Mm-hmm. um well, you know all the you know politics about passing aside you know the clients are ultimately distressed about it mm-hmm. um and um basically they that gets green lighted more often because it's kind of it is more needed than the other surgeries at the age and also it it is like it's it's kind of a practical thing uh a, a mastectomy is kind of the like outer layer of your body, whereas, you know, um, any other surgery, um, like different bottom surgeries are more um, uh, not, um, you know, it's more involved. And also, standard of care does not recommend phalloplasty for minors due to common uh, complications with phalloplasty.
0: Okay, what about uh, the current arguments that are being put out where there's a lot of countries in Scandinavia, for example, that are normally very progressive bastions of social democracy, but they seem to be regressing when it comes to things like using uh, puberty blockers. Political. Entirely?
1: Yes. Um, So Scandinavia, they're going off the Tavistock ruling, why they're doing that. And the Tavistock decision was all anecdotal people basically saying, you know, I regret, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the u k it was political, and then therefore they're going off that to 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 make the decision. and if you the 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 Sweden study that they often cite about like um uh yeah g- uh, you know after gender affirming surgeries, they're still more suicidal, right? Have mm-hmm. you, you do you do you know
0: I've heard I've heard of the sweetest... why that
1: is invalid.
0: Uh, I I oh, what well, the study is valid. No, please give give me the Swedish study d- debunk because that's the one I hear brought up by Crowder and all them all the time.
1: Yeah, so the debunk on that one is um, they're not they're not it's a category error. They're, they're 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 a methodological problem. They're comparing transgender people to the t- general population. Of course, transgender people of any stripe, whether they've had surgeries or not. Are going to be more suicidal than um, the general population because mm-hmm. of uh, acceptance. If you want to get, if you want to use an example on someone in their court acknowledging this, you can actually use uh, Reagan's Surgeon General um, uh, concerning abortion debate. If you haven't heard about the Turnaway study, um, no. it was a it was a thing where they compared. Um, the the sur- Reagan sur- sur- Surgeon General could not say uh, conclusively that like abortion was good or bad or whatever he want they wanted he he was.
2: Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic shoes at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: He had a political and a moral bias to be against abortion, but all of the science at that time um, couldn't stay it because it was comparing people who had an abortion versus people who successfully went to a term and had a baby. What you actually need to compare is people who had an abortion versus people who were turned away having an abortion. And for trans people to actually get the proper uh, comparison, it is trans people who have had gender-affirming surgeries versus trans people who want gender-affirming surgeries but can't get them. Mm-hmm. That is the difference.
0: What are some of the most popular arguments you hear on the right that you think are not often properly either debunked or rebuted against from the left and public figures like me?
1: Uh, well, that one is the big one. Um okay. uh trying to think of them off the top of my head. Uh, there's one about... Uh, Marcy Bowers talking about um uh not having not supposed to have um vaginoplasty on minors when really they're they're misquoting um that's the reason i brought up jazz jennings they're mm-hmm. misquoting some of her concerns about jazz jennings and applying just her one person uh thinks that um if someone doesn't orgasm prior to having a vaginoplasty, then they may never orgasm. And Mm -hmm. that is not the case. Um, There are plenty of people who have reported that happening for them as adults. When they were minors, they got the surgery, and then as an adult, they are able to do so. Um, And that's another common one right now. I'm trying to think of... um, uh, uh, maybe maybe land. i can't all well, well i was i was i was
0: also going to ask like do you think because you're saying that it's mostly political what's going on in Scandinavian countries do you think there's going to be effectively uh, a a pushback against this because it seems unusual to me for something that like over here i i can easily say Every major medical association in the United States agrees upon this. Like this, and like there's like there's not a lot of other topics where I would be like, if I sat in a room full of people and I was like, hey, what do you think about if a kid has melanoma? And they're like, well, what is the broad consensus of the medical association? I'd say most likely, if it's uh, benign and it hasn't metastasized or anything, they're going to recommend probably removing it. That's going to be the broad consensus of the medical community. I can't see in what world a Ben Shapiro or a Michael Knowles or whatever wants to interject themselves, and be like, your kid should. Not- be allowed to remove the sacred skin or something like that right it's it's mutilating your sacred body but in this case it seems like how do places that are otherwise so progressive fall to something that is so blatantly ascientific
1: um i mean i don't know europe's politics because like you i am i am u.s pilled even though i know you're canadian (laughs) um (laughs) but um I, I would have to say it just has to go with, like, um, you know, the current Moral Panic. You know, Kaylin Conrad did a giant video of what is a groomer talking mm-hmm. about the history of Moral Panics and how, like, you know, we went from, like, Dishtermer and, like, all the way, you know, the back and forth, back and forth up the up time to now... This is the moral panic. I mean, it really it it has to do with just ignorance, I guess. That would be my best guess, and why it's happening. I think I would like to believe, you know, that it would it would change with time, especially once like, you know, we get more and more studies about it. Um, You know, the the at least for the United States, the National uh, Trans Survey that concluded in December should be coming out relatively soon. It'd be really interesting to see. Um, you know all of that. Um, oh, I've remembered one of the gotchas is the autism gotcha right now. Oh, like, yeah,
0: I wanted to ask you about that because that's when your specialties yeah. where you see that intersection, right?
1: Yeah. Um. Well, I'm autistic. I I also have ADHD, and they are my area of expertise is serving those populations as well because I I had to if I'm going to help trans people, I had to. Um. Also, I had to help myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um. But um. Basically, they're they're trying to infant, infant uh, infantilize uh, autistic people, especially like um, those that aren't low support um, autistic people, as not being able to know their gender because autistic people in general are seen of being like lagging behind um, their peers in development uh, by like a few years or sometimes more Um, but ultimately like how does a nine-year-old know their gender how does a a five-year-old know their gender right it's it's that's the same principles there you basically explore what gender means to you and like when I do my gender dysphoria work another part I didn't tell you about is what I really I focus on even though you know it's not in the DSM or the ICD um gender euphoria maximizing gender euphoria and minimizing any dysphoria or gender apathy as much as possible Sounds to positive. basically yeah it basically ensuring that you like you you are confident in your gender identity and you can do that if you're autistic
0: mm-hmm. And and what is the direct debunk to that to people who are just like well I think these like kids don't know what they want and these people might have some form of autism or these people are simply experienced like or they're tomboys like I all, all those kind of arguments
1: yeah well the one debunk of course is you can say in the standards of care uh, from the WPATH that uh, we are required to either specialize in neurodivergence or consult with someone who specializes in neurodivergence if you don't mm-hmm. so that's one two um, Basically talking about the fact that it is a process. Yes, we affirm their gender, any client that sits in front of me. Um, but it's a moving target based on the more and more that they learn about themselves. So I will affirm you because like it's kind of like you were saying before with the like you know the skin cancer, it's not like I'm a doc you go to a doctor and you're going to be like, no, you don't have that that thing on your arm. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, it's the same thing. I affirm where the client is, no matter where the client is, and then I move them with them in the journey of them figuring it out. Like, you know, I will give an example of a time a kid decided they were not trans. (laughs) You know, I had a client who ultimately, they were exploring with me about whether they were trans and the uh, You know, we we explored and we explored, and then eventually we got to the point where the client realized that they, it wasn't that they were trans, it was that they had great distress on how men treated them, or should I say young boys treated them, and I guess some men, because men are, sorry Lance. No, no,
0: it's, <laughs> hey, I'm not pushing back on this,
2: <laughs> no mistakes found. Well, some,
1: some men are, are, are creepy. Um, And so basically the client didn't like how they treated them
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, and they, because they were queer
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and because of that great distress, they wanted to be a, they wanted, they wanted to be non-binary trans mask until they realized, well, I mean, if I look at my gender through the lens of being queer predominantly first, Mm -hmm. everything clicks. And then they didn't want to transition,
2: you oh, know? Interesting. Yeah, um, and that
1: happens. It's not It's not everyone, you know? It Most of the time that doesn't happen in my experience, but I can say that it has at least <laughs> once.
0: <laughs> Someone's asking a related question. How do you deal with parents who might be pushing it from the child? Do you speak with the parents separately as well to assess both sides? Well,
1: so um, I always have parents a part of therapy when I'm dealing with a minor Mm -hmm. it is actually required if they don't want to be a part of the process I don't take them on as a client okay um no no matter what the issue is whether it's gender work or not um and basically I will do some sessions with the client by themselves some sessions with the client and the parent some sessions with just the parent especially when I'm teaching like how to help the kid like manage autism or ADHD. That's mostly the parents uh, work to be fair when when they're minor. Mm-hmm. Um basically like real brief glance and if you want to pick my brain for yourself, <laughs> it's 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 about building support for um the neurodivergence so that way you're kind of hugging and supporting it and basically building systems to help you move through a world that doesn't help, doesn't support you. There are barriers in your way. And so you have to build systems to help you move through it and maintain them. So like, for example, um, externalizing what you need to do and think when you are AD, or like ADHD and like methods on how you do basic tasks, you, you need to externalize that because when your executive function is is low and you're in the fog that day, you can use that to keep you on track. People who are um, who don't have ADHD, that would might be good for them to do. People with ADHD, you kind of have to. yeah, right. Um people who are autistic, um how the the externalization process for them is a lot of like mindfulness and reading your like your like batteries, be it like your sensory battery, your social battery. You're like, you know, um, anxiety, all of that, you're learning to read yourself and then therefore taking preventative actions or, um, doing things like structuring your life in a way that you like, you know, I often use like an H, like a Dungeons and Dragons metaphor when teaching this to clients being like, you're either blocking HP drains or you're stemming and stuff to like add (laughs) HP back, you know? Um, and that's kind of how I do my, my autism work.
0: Interesting. Do you find that uh, people come into you primarily for trans issues or more for neurodivergent issues, just out of curiosity?
1: Yes. <laughs> both. Both. Oh, okay. <laughs> almost everyone, Almost everyone on my caseload that's trans is neurodivergent. I don't think I have one who isn't.
0: Interesting. They um, either have
1: ADHD, autism, or both.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, I won't lie. This has been absolutely fascinating. And my chat is reiterating that I've seen nonstop people saying I am learning so much right now. This is the most fascinating conversation. Um, I have to start getting ready for, uh, uh, the panel show that I have coming on after this. I was wondering if you wanted to, could you plug any and everything that you, you want where people can find you and, and your wonderful work?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, if my personal Twitter is, uh, at ria Rosella underscore, um, and if you want to contact my org, if you are a clinician in the audience um, and you want consultation, you can find my organization that the, the, the private practice that I work at is modernpath.net. Um, let's see. Um, I'm, that's probably my biggest plugs. Um, and, you know, I'm always willing to come back. If you want to have me on for even like for anything, whether it's neurodivergent stuff. Otherwise, I'd be more than happy to
0: oh i'd love to have you back thank you so much for helping us out especially uh the sissies in the audience (laughs) (laughs) all right cheers uh yeah that was awesome can everyone please uh go uh check out her socials uh i believe i just found her on twitter let me double check this i don't want to give the wrong information oh i've also got the documents for the leftist mafia too many things happening at once uh, yeah, at Ria Rosella underscore so R I A R O S E L L A underscore. Uh, if you want to follow Ria Rosella, but no hate watchers, go follow. Leave uh Ria alone if you're hate watching me for whatever reason. But thank you so much. Uh, if you're still watching this, Ria, that was uh very very informative. And yes, I do have a, a world of other questions to ask, but I do, I do feel like I've I've leveled up, uh, like a, a plus, plus five, you know, uh, plus five. CIS basic understanding of simple concepts, and I'm sure trans people are like, Oh, don't worry, you CIS people, we're gonna gonna hold your hand through another one, because it's better you know these things than you keep trying to pass legislation. Do you enjoy the surfs but prefer not to have to use your eyeballs? Many are saying this. Well, we've got the solution for you. It's the Surf times in podcast form, available on most major podcasting networks now. If you enjoy it, please consider leaving a good review and feedback because it really helps the show out, apparently, and it's free, just like the podcast.
2: To our gods, Xander Corvus and Peyton L. Juice, we shall spend many a generation building mighty cathedrals in your honor. To our monarch, Tom Spiker, we are but your oafish jesters, here to offer you a laugh at any opportunity. To our brave knights of the round table, Rachel K., Izzy Solidarity, Victoria Bell, Sebastian Demel, Mark Harmon, Benji Arnie, Scary Earth Human, Tony, DM Rivera, Resident Scarecrow, Sir Nickus, Cheryl Alvarez, Ruby Kelly, Brandon, Words Greenwood, Everything Important, Hegbert Celine, Matthew Scarborough, Stellar Vision, Ariane McCarthy, Doug Cady, Daniel Sutton, Jenna Tal, Dark Puppy, Quiet185, Anna Loves Riley, Omni, Riley and Anna, PoodleHawk, Multimondi, TrevBotEXE, Brian Ephraim, Arthur Bofojack, Catherine, Ramon Acosta, Inkosen. Ralph Parler, Violent Orchard, Political Puppy, La Media Panza, Todd Buckingham, and Todd Lajonette. We salute our valiant heroes off to fight injustice everywhere.